reading today on which the message is based is taken from Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes, which follows Proverbs, of course. And we are in the first chapter. And chapter 1, and we are starting at verse 12. <coughs> I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. That which is crooked cannot be made straight, and that which is wanting cannot be numbered. I communed with mine own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to greater state, and have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is vexation of spirit. For in much wisdom is much grief. And he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. Amen. Amen. Wisdom is a good thing, except when it isn't. Anyone who knows the Bible already knows the value of wisdom. But what type of wisdom is that? Well, the wisdom which comes from God is undoubtedly a good thing. We should all want it. Yet the author of Ecclesiastes seems to say it's no good. Either there's something wrong with him, or he's speaking about a particular type of wisdom. This book, Ecclesiastes, it has more than one author, it would seem. The bulk of the book was written by a man called Kohelet. Now, sometimes we retain names and sometimes we feel they should be translated into their, you know, to their meaning. And so uh, the name Kohelet is, is almost never uh, kept what is translated into the preacher or the teacher, as, as we saw in verse 12. In any case, it, uh, it seems to be another name for Solomon. And also in verse 12, he, of course, he identifies himself as king over Israel. Well, let me be clear now that 
the point of the whole book of Ecclesiastes is to show how ridiculous it is to look for meaning in life unless you have God. Now to combat this uh, this, uh, state of being, uh, men have invented innumerable ways to fill in time. They're trying to give life some purpose. And we find that many young people are drawn away from the things of God because they're impressed by the huge variety of distractions that 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 world outside has to offer. Here, Solomon says, it's all meaningless. And he has the credentials to back this up. You have a look at, um, if you want to have a look this up, you can. It's in 1 Kings and chapter 4. Um, and in 1 Kings chapter 4, um, verses 29 and 30, it says this. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding exceeding much and largeness of heart even as the sand that is on the seashore. And Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the east country and all the wisdom of Egypt. So he speaks with authority here. And then back in Ecclesiastes, in verse 16, it echoes that. And we see in verse 13 there just how much he gave himself to this task. He he really did apply himself to this this great thing. And uh, we're going to look at some of the the things that he found. And the first thing I want to draw your attention to is this principle. He discovered that nothing makes much sense. Nothing makes much sense. We know Solomon elsewhere taught that heavenly wisdom, it's not only a blessing to us, but it's also very useful. He said it was a good thing. He said this was something we are meant to pursue. And it's a good quest he's on here. It's a good quest. As you know, most people in the world, they don't give any serious thought whatsoever to the meaning of life. They ignore the biggest and most important questions and fill their lives instead with trivia. Mm. Now here it's as if he's showing us that man's wisdom alone gets you nowhere. If a person, using only their own wisdom, tries to answer the big questions in life, the preacher here calls it, in verse 14, vexation. Of spirit, vexation of spirit. That could mean um, a, a perplexing sort of task, something that is infuriating. The, the word spirit there is ruach. Uh, it can be translated. It is translated in different places as spirit. Sometimes breath. Solomon sometimes. Sometimes translates it, sometimes uses it for the wind, you know, the wind outside. And 
it's for that reason that it can be it can be uh, properly uh, understood as striving after the wind. That's another way of looking at this, striving after the wind. So let's go with that for a moment. Try to picture a man chasing the wind. So there's this wind coming from behind him and he's ready and the wind rushes past him and he starts to run. And then at that point when he believes he's caught up with the wind, he reaches out and he gets hold of the wind. And of course he, he opens his hand and finds it's completely empty. And so we may think of this in that way. A man does his best to find out what life's all about. But no matter how successful he thinks he's been, he's still empty-handed. I should have said I don't mind children making noise, really. I'll just get louder. In verse 15, we see... This is a proverb uh, built into the text, verse 15. That which is crooked cannot be made straight. That which is wanting cannot be numbered. And so it uses the idea of, you know, maybe a branch of an oak tree that can't be straightened out. And if you want to continue with the oak tree picture... That which is wanting cannot be numbered. It's like someone giving you one acorn and asking you to count it. And you go, right, one, one. And and, and so you you, you get the picture. There's There's a lack there. Now, seeing as this section is trying to answer the big questions in life, it's about trying to find the answers using the power of your own thoughts alone. We should understand this proverb primarily, I think, in that sense. So, just when you think you're getting somewhere into your investigation into life, there are twists and there are turns that you can do nothing about. That's the crookedness. And you only have limited information as well. You don't have enough information to come to a proper conclusion. That's the want or the lack. Now some, not, not all, some, some of the ancient philosophers, they believed a life-pursuing wisdom was the highest calling a man could have. Well, what does Solomon say? Apparently he was uh, wiser than all of them. We find it in the second half of verse 13. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. This painful endeavour. Those philosophers, the Epicureans, well, they wouldn't like this because they thought they they were some of the people who thought wisdom. Well, that's what life's all about. Now, I don't want you to think Solomon despises education or scientific inquiry or even philosophy. He doesn't. But those things can't answer the big Questions. One of the lads in our congregation has a is a PhD in philosophy, and I keep <coughs> taking the Mickey out of him, saying that you know for thousands of years they've argued about the same things and got nowhere. Pretty much got nowhere. So P- 
people who think about important stuff, and there's not many, but what they want to know is, they want to know why we're here. They want to know how they should live. They want to know, they want to know the basics. They want to be able to come to terms with how brief life is as well. That's a big thing, coming to terms with the brevity of life. It says here in Psalm 39 and verse 5, Behold, thou hast made my days as a handbreadth, and mine age is as nothing before thee. Verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity. Someone commented when they met me this morning about how grey my beard had gone. Uh. I, won't, I, won't, I won't tell you it was Sue. <laughs> but it, it, it's, it's a reminder, isn't it, about how brief life is. My generation, folks, will soon be gone. All of us will soon be gone. And then God would have us pass the baton on to the next generation. And for all the young people who decide... The rubbish in this world is worth more than the gospel. And despite that, still the Lord has young people who he saves and he plants in churches. Maybe not to keep Hollywell Church open forever, but to keep the work of God going wherever it might be forever. He will build his church. He does that. And I pray, and I pray for that next generation that they would exceed us in all those things pertaining to God, that they would exceed us in, in, in being zealous for the work of the kingdom and zealous in prayer. But they need to know carnal wisdom won't help them. And remember this, that if, even if they get heavenly wisdom, they still won't be as intelligent as God. Heavenly wisdom doesn't give you all the answers, it doesn't make you all knowing. Life will still be full of difficult questions that can't be answered. Nothing makes much sense. It's the second thing I think that Solomon is telling us. The second thing is that we can't do much about it. We can't do much about it. Here's the thing. How can we really change things? The world is broken. I don't need to tell you this. It's messed up. And I'm afraid that we cannot fix it. We can't fix it. I know people get involved in all kinds of uh, movements for, for change. And they're often frustrated at just how little difference they make. I devoted a huge chunk of my life to a few causes that were important to me. And when I think of all the time and the effort and, and the money that, that I expended, when I think of all that activity, all those debates, the truth is, friends, very little has, has changed. And even worse, the small difference that we sometimes experience is Fragile. It could be undone in a day. All it takes is a change of government, a change in the, the ideas of this fickle society, and it could all be undone. And everything I've done 
can be undone in a second and be, be pointless. I don't watch news, but well, I used to. But uh, if you ever watch the goings on in the United States during an election, you'll know the whole thing is very shallow. People can lose the presidency because their tie wasn't, you know, straight enough, or they made a silly comment years ago on social media. And the, the campaigns are made up of the froth of marketing, and they spend millions of dollars on all kinds of psychological techniques to manipulate people into voting for them. And remember, I remember when President Obama was running his campaign. Now, all his people, they saturated their communications with this, this mantra, change you can believe in. Change you can believe in. And millions of American voters who believed this man was going to create a new world voted him in. And like every president before him and since then, he went back on many of the things he promised. Soon, the hysteria died down as people realised nothing really was going to change. So for all the, the, the razzmatazz and all the slick speeches, their lives were pretty much the same. As for the changes which are made by our leaders... What do they really change? I mean, have they stopped slavery, for example? No, slavery is still a global business. Have they perhaps ended the killing of children in their mother's wombs? No. Uh, that goes on today more than it ever has. Have all these wonderful changes brought about an end to war? No, there's still not been a single 24-hour period in man's history where there has been peace on earth. Leaders still send off their young men to die in battle, and the young men perhaps thinking that this gives them meaning in life readily sign up. Change we can believe in. This proverb I said it was about the obstacles man comes up against when he tries to figure out what life's all about. But it can be broadened out, I think. We could think of the proverb in a moral sense. So what do I mean by that, that proverb? Well, the world is morally crooked. Morally crooked. It's sinful. People spend their lives pursuing pleasure. And as I said, the world has created a multitude of attractions for sinful men and women to pursue. There's so many distractions and they're so brightly coloured. Many people run towards them. And by their own blind wisdom, they consider that the activities of the local church are extremely dull in comparison. That's how blind they are. So the world is crooked. And the proverb leads us to understand it can't be fixed. Man cannot put an end to sin. Never mind making society sinless. A man can't even make himself sinless. He or she is addicted to sin. And no amount of willpower or self-belief 
or positive thinking can break that addiction, that rebellion against God. The world is twisted. But the proverb reminds us it's also wanting, it's also lacking. When I read that, I was reminded of this verse in Romans 3. We have it on a, a poster. Uh, we have a new sign to go up outside the church. And it's the one that says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If the glory of God was something that was found on the top of a mountain, no one would be able to climb to the top. Or if we thought of the glory of God that was something to be had at the end of a race, no one would reach the finishing line. We lack what is needed to reach the perfect standard of God. We are lacking in holiness. We are lacking in true wisdom. And we're lacking in every way that matters. And the proverb indicates that we have such a lack of anything good in ourselves. It's not even worth trying to count our good points. We might have some good points. God in his mercy furnishes men with the ability to do some good in this world. That's the only way mankind can function. If God just left us alone completely, everything would go to pieces very, very quickly. But even those glimmers of goodness we see in this world are a million times a million miles away, a million miles short of that glory which is in God. And unless a man reaches that impossible standard, he'll be eternally lost. And he'll be doomed to live in that dank and dark place that God has prepared. And this is why the gospel exists. The gospel is a solution, of course, to a problem. The problem is our sin. It offends God. Sin is so contrary to the being of God that every time we sin, no matter how trivial we think it is, we should think of it as jarring God to the core. And this is why the Son of God came. This is why Jesus of Nazareth was destined to come and grow up into a young man and make his way to Jerusalem because he had an appointment with death. Can it be true, friends? Can it be true? Did he really leave heaven's glory to come down and hand himself over to be savagely killed? Was he really murdered by Members of a race whose saviour he was. It's all true. He volunteered to be, if you like, beaten to death in his soul by an angry father. A father he'd done nothing against. But in the mystery of this atonement that we read of, a Trinitarian God agreed to this dreadful 
but glorious solution. The Son of God was hanging there, ready to take the punishment for sinners. The Holy Spirit, the strengthening and comforting Holy Spirit, if you like, turned his back on the Son. And then the Father, furious with your sin and with your sin and with my sin, took it all out on his own Son. If Jesus died for a man or a woman, their crooked ways will be straightened. If the Son paid the price for you, you'll no longer lack. The Lord will straighten you out and he will sort you out. All who Christ died for will be given faith in Christ. And all who have faith in Christ will find eternal forgiveness. Friends, I said to you this business of finding meaning in life was a miserable, thankless and inconclusive task. That's just the way God arranged it. That's the way God arranged it. He wants you and me to see that without Christ there is nothing but smoke and mirrors and a pointless search for the truth. I said a while back we, we can't change things. But here's change we really can believe in. Because the truth about our new job as ambassadors for Christ, the truth is that we're involved in change that will last forever. If you belong to God, you should take heart as you struggle and feel you're not making much of an impact in this world. Take heart that your efforts in the service of God are truly important. And what's more, they are the only things which are important. Here's my third point. That I believe Solomon reached. We're not to dwell on it. Nothing makes much sense. There's not much we can do about those things. He tells us not to dwell on it. So. What is Solomon's advice. To those who think that through. Science and philosophy. We can find satisfaction. Verse 18 gives us the conclusion. They'll find grief or frustration. They'll find sorrow. There's another angle to this. If we think about the whole world being broken, and I said it can't be fixed, but it's not just that. It's not only we experience frustration in trying to find truth. We experience frustration and sorrow by being aware of just how broken the world is. Going back to my involvement in different things and before I, before I met Jesus, I can understand what Solomon meant here. Maybe I can give you an example. Before my wife and I were saved, 
We spent a number of years campaigning for animal welfare issues. So we went on marches and we gave out leaflets and we wrote letters to MPs. We had letters printed in newspapers. We had stalls where we would show films of animals in need of help. And for a few years, we even stopped eating animals. Now, I've already made the point that such massive commitment to a cause like that, it, it changes very little. And if there are any slightly positive changes, uh, when you view them from a godly, eternal perspective, they're not that important anyway. As much as I like, you know, animals, um, the eternal perspective that God has, those changes don't mean that much. Well, here's the thing now. We had to go through all that frustration and sorrow along the way. There was, there was frustration. We were not achieving very much. And frustration, it was taking too long. But we also had to experience uh, real sorrow as well. Because in all our investigations of all these different types of animal cruelty, we were upset. We were upset a lot of the time. So there was frustration and sorrow as we tried to straighten things out. And as it turns out, they couldn't be straightened. You can't end animal suffering. You can't end human savagery. It was after all this, I had truly learned the meaning of the saying, ignorance is bliss. Now, that might sound selfish, but my point is to, my point is that we should not immerse ourselves daily in, in the troubles of this world, because it will bring sorrow. That's why I always tell people to stop watching the news. Stop watching that, that news. It, it exists just to bring uh, sorrow and outrage and uh, things like that into your life. And so, whatever, if you, get, if you want to get involved in some good, good cause, um, then you need to know you're going to face sorrow as well as frustration. The more you look into what's wrong, uh, the more suffering you'll be aware of, and on a scale far more than the average person. So this is where I think Solomon was, was heading with this. So the big question for us when we're involved in things is whether it's all worth it. And I'm not telling you whether it is or it isn't worth it. You, you will do whatever you want. But I could caution people to expect hardly any change, even if you dedicate your whole life to it. Friends, I've wasted a substantial part of the life God has given me on these causes which are not that important. I can't get that time back now. It's gone. However, when, what, what I'd impress on people who, who feel like they should take up some good cause, I'd impress on them the need to find God above all else. To understand that during their lives and after they've gone, this world will continue in its state of being in a cruel, cruel mess. 
until God comes to put an end to it all. I want those people to understand they can only discover real truth and meaningful change when they are servants of the Most High. And this is what I would urge on you today, friends, whether you're in this room today or you're listening on the internet. I would urge you to enter God's service and put those other things aside. Leave them for other people. Enter God's service. Join the gospel <coughs> cause. You would recall, perhaps I said the name of the man, translated in verse 12 as preacher, was Kohelet. The name literally refers to someone who gathers people together for the purpose of teaching or preaching. Gathering together. And that being so, I want to read this from, uh, from uh, Luke Luke chapter 13 and verse 34. It's a well-known one. Luke 13 and verse 34. This is Jesus speaking. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem which killeth the prophets and stoneth them that are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather their brood under their wings... And ye would not. Now, we find, we find uh, Jesus there uttering a condemnation against religious Jerusalem. And he cries out to them. His complaint is that it was his intent. He came to, to gather Jerusalem's children to him. And they resisted him. I mention this because we see there a picture of Christ as one who himself gathers in. He gathers in. He gathers in all his elect people, all those he died for. He gathers them in through the inspired word, the Bible. He gathers them through the work of the Holy Spirit who reveals um, himself to them and he reveals that Christ is the Saviour and the Holy Spirit then secures them as members of that group which will live with him for eternity. If Solomon was the wise one who, through his teachings, gathers people together to learn, so much more was Jesus the one who'd effectually gather people to him. And it's for this reason Solomon could be thought of as the one, as one who foreshadowed the coming of Christ, the mm. type of Christ. In another of Jesus' condemnations of sinful people, he said this in Matthew 12. The Queen of the South shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Someone greater than Solomon is here today, friends. Someone greater than Solomon lives in the hearts of all of us who truly belong to God. And that someone 
is the Holy One. He is the root of Jesse. He is the angel of the covenant. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And when we hear that great alarm noise of heaven, which marks the end of this world, may all of you who hear his word today be found in Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.